Hello and welcome to the PopBreak.com's official Oscars podcast, hosted by Marissa Carpico and Matt Taylor. Marissa Carpico, the film editor at thepopbreak.com. I'm here with our TV editor, Matt Taylor. Say hello, Matt. Hey, everyone. Um, and we are back, back, back again um, for the second episode of our, our new Oscar series, um, The Best Picture Still Is. Um, and, and the winner still is. Oh, and the winner still is. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> We're new at this feed, other things. folks. Yep. <laughs> Brand new at podcasts. Haven't been doing it for a year. Um, <laughs> uh, anyway, um, we are. We talked about 1999 last time, and we are going back 60 years to talk about 1939, um, which is 80 years from today. Um, it's it's a big year. Um, we're doing some heavy hitters in these first ones. Um, 1939 is the year that Gone with the Wind be- wins Best Picture, um, and also there are 10 nominees. So I'm sure some of you saw two of them, but we I've we've seen them all. Um, <laughs> Me within the last, like, two months of recording this episode, so whoop, whoop. Um, but the ceremony takes place uh, on uh, February 29th, 1940, um, at the Coconut Grove in L.A.'s Ambassador Hotel. It starts at 8.30 p.m., and they have dinner beforehand, which they don't do now, which is why the stars are usually pretty ravenous um, by the time the thing is, ends and Wolfgang Puck does his whole thing. I'd love um, to watch them all eat during the ceremony. Like, absolutely. I, they I, should bring that you know, back. I would think it must be like the Globes, honestly, like because they do they eat dinner there and then they get hammered and then you know, um, and then you get a sort of uh, a Star Is Born situation where you you slap your wife in the face because you're real drunk. Um, anyway, <laughs> the awards weren't announced until 11 p.m. like Western like Pacific time, which is just the most outstanding thing I've ever heard. Can you imagine like you're eating for two and a half hours or whatever, and then or an hour and a half, and then they're like, oh yeah, we got to do like awards and shit and then they announce them real quick um if anybody wanted to watch it it is available to watch through the um the academy's like youtube channel it's like a 17 minute thing um bob hope was the uh the host that night he hosted a bunch but this was his first one um and the <laughs> the th- most shocking thing about the ceremony that i've i mean i think both of us probably read in the research is that uh the la times spoiled it um while people were walking into dinner, like they, the early edition at the time, the Oscars, the, you know, the Academy would give the winners list to papers and stuff. <laughs> and at the 845 edition, when, you know, technically dinner started at 830, but these are celebrities are walking in late, um, spoiled who won. So like Betty Davis and Clark Gable both knew they were going to lose, um, <laughs> which is horrible. <laughs> like, Good for them for still showing up to dinner, I guess. But who knows? Um, True troopers. (laughs) I do not think some stars today would be as interested. (laughs) Frances McDormand would bounce the second she heard she lost. Um, But that that incident became the reason that the winners are kept totally secret. Um, And they brought in the the accountants, which is crazy. Like, to think that that happened because of the LA Times fucking up. (laughs) 80 years ago being like lol let's release the winners and betty davis like throwing a drink in someone's face it'd be a massive scandal today like (laughs) i would love oh i'd love it i mean at the time i'm sure people didn't care that much because it was just the la times like who who who, whatever but still wild um so to the film that won uh 
Gone with the Wind, like I said. It's produced by David O. Selznick um, at MGM. Um, and he also did things like King Kong, Rebecca. So this is a big deal kind of guy. Um, and back then, producers were almost like more important than directors, which uh, is especially true of this film because it has basically three directors, probably a couple more people who just like never were mentioned. Um, George Cukor was originally the person who um, was hired to direct it. And he also helped uh, direct the wizard of Oz that same year. And then fully directed another movie, the women that, that in 39 busy guy. Um, And then he had, he got fired pretty quick. Uh, So Victor Fleming took over, um, who also helped out on Wizard of Oz. Um, And he's the main credit for the Wizard of Oz. Um, And he was brought on direct and he did most of it, but then he had a nervous breakdown because Selznick was such a a nightmare. So Sam Wood steps in um, and directs the rest of it while Fleming is trying to recover from the horrors of of (laughs) directing Gone with the Wind, which is a massive thing. That's four hours long. Um, And yeah. And then the novel is written, um, was written shortly before this movie came out. Um, uh, June 30th, 1936 is its release date. It's written by Margaret Mitchell. Um, Fascinatingly, in a 2014 Harris poll, uh, it was America's, voted America's second favorite book of all time, after the Bible and before the Harry Potter ser- series, which is shocking because I, I I don't know a lot of people who've read it. Yeah, can I float a theory? <laughs> like, yeah, please, please do. I 100% do not believe anybody that voted for that book actually read that book. And they're just like, <laughs> I love the movie, so I have to have loved the book. Like, because I'm sorry, there's no way in hell. <laughs> like, it's it, like, Yeah, I don't know who they're asking, like what book groups in the South specifically they're asking, but that yeah. is wild to me. Um, and the, the, the script was um, put together, uh, ba- like, you know, basically adapted by, by Sidney Howard. Um, and that involves a lot because that book is a thousand pages. <laughs> so I don't, and then there are a bunch of other uncredited script writers because there's no way one person could do that without, um, dying. Um, uh, <laughs> speaking of, he did win for, um, uh, adapted screenplay, but had died a couple like months beforehand of like a tractor accident or something horrifying on a Awkward. farm. Um, tractors are a real theme these last two um, and then uh, the lead actress is Vivian Lee and she as Scarlett O'Hara um, and she was uh, the girl chosen after a very long search um, of 14, 1400 actresses tried out for it um, and then Vivian Lee sort of came in thanks to um, Selznick's brother who was like her agent basically um, her like theatrical agent she's she's British and brought her in and like and said like listen you have to hire her and and she got hired um and her her romantic opposite um as Clark Gable um as Rhett Butler he Selznick actually held the picture for two years to try to make sure that Gable was available for that role um and then it comes out and it's the still the highest grossing movie of all time when you adjust for inflation by like so much it made 198 million dollars domestically unadjusted so like now that's i don't even i didn't it's even bother insane like, amount that's like, that's like i think it was like a billion like three billion dollars um uh oh here it is i i did write it down 1.8 billion domestically adjusted that's domestic I, that does not include whatever it made everywhere else which at the time you know hollywood was the biggest producer of film i'm sure it made ass loads of money 
Um, it's in a one three seven aspect ratio, which is basically like a square, like a little larger than a square. Um, there are different cuts of the film, but the original movie is, is a two hundred and thirty eight minutes long, which is the one I saw the other day. Um, and it was nominated for thirteen um, awards. It won eight competitive awards and two honorary um, Oscars. Um, so yeah, it was. It's a fucking juggernaut. Um, and I've talked a lot now, so. <laughs> Matt, why don't you tell me about your history with the Best Picture winner of that year, Gone with the Wind? Well, um, so it's fu- it's kind of funny. Um, I have vivid memories of like half the VHSs I owned as a kid having the commercial for Gone with the Wind before, like a trailer. Really? I think it must have been like recently remastered or something like that mm-hmm. at the time because mm-hmm. like. Like, honestly, I think, actually, Wizard of Oz is also nominated for Best Picture, and, like, I remember in front of the Wizard of Oz VHS, it was, like, you had a Gone with the Wind trailer. But I did not even watch Gone with the Wind until I was in college, actually. Like, it was just the sort of thing that, as a kid, I was never shown because my parents didn't really care for it. Mm. And, um... And then, like, when I was in high school, I was just like, I do not want to watch a four-hour movie. (laughs) And um, watching it in college was kind of interesting because I had heard so much about the problematic aspects of the film, which we're going to talk about. And um, so I went in with that mindset. And, yeah, it's very hard to watch, I think. Like, you know, you try to divorce yourself from, like, your current mindset sometimes to appreciate a film from different eras and i mean Mm -hmm. you can see the technical skill in the movie but Mm -hmm. like i I watched it in 2014 the very 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 end of 2014 and for the first time and like i was just like you know i'm like technically interesting but like yikes and (laughs) i remember really i watched it actually christmas eve 2014 with my siblings because um I was just like, I have to finally watch it. I'm home from school. Like, let me just... I'll, I'll never have this much free time. And both of my siblings, who I had not seen either, and are not as into movies as me, as me, tapped out at, like, the halfway mark. They were like, all right, like, we get it. We're going to go. Four, so, four hours is a long sit. It's a long it is. sit. And, um, but, you know, it's a, it's a very weird movie to watch now, I think. Mm-hmm. And as much as I could appreciate some level of craft with it specifically in like the incredible cinematography in it and just the production design it's it's very very hard to watch (laughs) and not be like a little uncomfortable during i think yeah 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 especially um all of us now having seen black landsman um it is yes yeah it got read to filth last year um it deservedly so and also there was a um they did a um a tribute to um, uh, Wizard, the Wizard of Oz at the Oscars like three years ago or whenever it was um, for like, or I guess it would have been like five years ago for the 75th anniversary and no mention of Gone with the Wind that year. Like they were like, nope, the only movie that was good that came out in 1939 was definitely the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> and like Gaga did a tribute and no one said Scarlett O'Hara. <laughs> it was fascinating. Um Hollywood would love to forget it, but it is absolutely the highest grossing film of all time ever. So it's impossible. And it does have its like avid fans still. I mean, I have like, so actually I guess like my first time fully watching it was in college, but I do remember I had a very odd history teacher, my, um, my junior year of high school. 
And while learning about the Great Depression, um, we talked about Gone with the Wind and how, like, his theory was that, like, and I think this is a theory shared by many, many people, like, mm. it did so well, like, because, pe- like, kids and young people during the Great Depression, like, really related to what Scarlet's, Hell yeah. Scarlet's going through. And so we watched quite a few clips of it in high school, and a lot of people in my class, like, had enjoyed like like they had seen it already and it were were fans so yeah. it's the sort of thing it had like it, some really avid supporters now but i do think in general especially in philly communities like people are kind of like eh. like it's, it's been largely uh, we're all very queasy about it um which is important to think of when i because i i have quite a history with this film um i am one of the few people who anyone will ever meet who has read it um, it was my college roommate's favorite book. Oh, um, wow. she's a nice gal. <laughs> I should probably <laughs> make clear. I asked her about this the other day cause I was like, I don't want to besmirch your name, um, on the podcast, but she was like, no, it is no longer my favorite book. Um, I haven't read it since high school. And she, she not only read it in high school, but read it multiple times, which like, I don't, she's insane. Um, I, I've only read it once and will probably only ever read it once. Um, but yeah, it was her favorite book. And I was like, wow, what a strange choice. Like, maybe I'll read it. So I read it. Um, and I fully hated it. Um, for a lot of reasons, uh, that we're definitely going to get into. Um, but shortly after that, TCM was playing Gone with the Wind on, on TV. And I was like, oh, you know, I should watch this now that I've seen the movie or read the book. Um, and the book felt like a really Cliff's Notes version of the book, which, um, is inevitable, but like felt too sort of like empty to me. Like it was just like too, I, it, because after like, it's like watching, like say you read all of the Harry Potter series at once and then they only made one movie and that whole movie, that one movie what? has to cover everything. That's what it felt like. I was like, this is silly. Like, this is not, we don't have time. There's not enough here. Um, like four hours is not enough. We should have done like a six hour mini series cut. Um, but yeah, I thought it was like a bad movie and my friend at the time had hated the movie. She just really didn't like it, even though she loved the book. I think probably for the same reasons. Um, but, and I hadn't watched it since then because I was like, all right, I did that. Um, but then we were doing this project and I thought, uh, I basically decided like, I'm going to rewatch everything that I haven't seen in the last year. Um, except for one, <laughs> which we'll get to like next week um, or, you know, next episode. Um but yeah, so I watched it again for the, they put it back in theaters recently for um, the anniversary and I bought a ticket and shockingly there were other people there. Um, some of them black, which I was like, wow, that's, I did, wow, I really thought this was only like a white people thing that like we, we were the only ones who acknowledged this nightmare. And like, I, it was, I just couldn't believe that anyone else would see it. I don't know. <laughs> like It just, it was wild to me. Um and yeah, I watched it in the theater and, um, I, th- I was blown away. I th- actually, it's like, it's incredible filmmaking. I think it might be great. Um, which is in very difficult to say, honestly, because it's, um, it is great filmmaking, but I think that great filmmaking, what is so upsetting about it and what Spike tapped into Spike Lee tapped into by showing a clip of it in Black Clans or starting Black Clans with the clip of it is that it is incredible, glorious, like highest level possible filmmaking on every level. It is well made. It is well acted. 
It tells this insane epic story that is like translates just like has staying power. And the problem with that is that because it is so good, it is a an ins- utterly insidious delivery system for for a horrible message, which is mm-hmm. basically um, the Civil War ruined America. <laughs> and like the South was the greatest place in the world and the slaves were better off. And it's horrifying. Um, the thing I think about with the book the most, and well, the, the whole story in general, is there's a little anecdote at the beginning of the, the book, the edition that I read, that is basically like Margaret Mitchell grew up in the South and she did not know that the, that the South had lost the Civil War until she was quite old and learned it in school. And she was so shocked by that that she cried and like had to be leave for the day. Oh, my God. Because that was the family she grew up in. And you can, you can see that in this story, which is about realistically, for those who don't know, um, about a girl who is very young and she is living in antebell- the antebellum South and then the Civil War starts. And then she marries her way multiple times just to survive the, the, the post-war world and her, her you know, the black servants that she had as a kid stay with her for the most part. Um, and she is a bitch on wheels and there is a (laughs) bizarre, um, like feminist hero aspect to it. And, and totally what you're saying about like people in the depression, seeing like someone who goes from wealth to poverty and then builds their self themselves back up to enormous wealth again through their own grit and determination. Um, I could, again, totally see why that would appeal to people just still like basically at the tail end of the depression, it it technically ends in 39. Um, but yeah, it's, um, she also does horrifying things like, um, (laughs) literally at one point, when was the last time you watched it? Uh, Matt? Uh, like 2014. Okay. I watched clips Um, though before to prepare for this conversation. (laughs) Yep. Um, there is a scene in it that I don't know if you even like is so quick that I like, didn't remember it um, where Scarlett is gets the uh, is running a mill from one of her her second husband um, and these prisoners get brought in by the foreman and he's like yeah there's this like new work program you can like rent a bunch of prisoners to work in your mill and she's like okay and he's like um, if you want things to get done let me do with them what I want. And she's like, fine, do whatever. I don't care as long as things get done on time. And the people in that little chain gang are, there's some white people in there, but we all saw 13th. That is rewritten history. And we all know it. It is horrifying. So like the, the clear implication there is that like, she just fully went on to like the new Jim Crow slave labor bullshit. It was shocking. Um, And it's like, it's like a two minute scene. And it's the whole scene is really about like, She's emasculating her husband, like, and Ashley, the worst guy in the world. Um, It's wild. It's the wildest thing I've ever seen. It is horrifying to watch in in this day and age, but it also is indelible filmmaking, and I don't know if we'll ever um, move past it, (laughs) basically. It's It's the sort of thing that, like, I think has a place in film classrooms as, like, and I mean just film history in general. It's like you can't talk about film today without talking about it. I think it's important, but it is a sort of thing. I just think it's like, I've, I've never encountered someone since high school, like who has 
express love for the film without qualifying it in any way. Like, usually whenever yep. people talk about the movie, there is this sort of, like, note over it. Like, oh, I like it a lot, but also it's, you know, all these horrible things. Yeah. So, but, like, I don't know how I'd react if I ever met somebody today who, like, didn't qualify their love for it. Because I'd kind of be like, oh, my God, like, what? <laughs> and yeah. I, because of that, I just really wonder. I'm like, is this the sort of film that we need to transition from, like, being part of the, quote-unquote, like, film canon of, like, the movies you have to see before you die, or the movies, Mm -hmm. like, as a general film-goer, not someone who's interested in learning about film. Yeah. And, like, just, should we remove it from there and just put it in the classroom as, like, a, this is important, but, like, on an academic level? (laughs) I don't, I don't know. I I fear that, because I think it's dangerous to say something like, because it allows us to forget the oh, bad true. things we used to do because there's a moment like other than that chain gang moment, there is an even more instructive moment that I, I found so shocking and like the movie and it comes later in the movie. So the movie has been working on you for so long that you don't like it. I just, and and things are so different that I didn't realize what it meant until I had to think about it for a second. There's a moment where, um, Scarlett and, uh, Hannah McDaniel's character, Mammy, um, are walking through rebuilding the, the Atlanta that's being rebuilt, um, after the war. And, uh, there's, they walk by this like carpetbagger guy who's talking to a group of black men and is like, and we're, we're going to do this. We're going to help you get, we're going to give everybody, everybody, a 40 acres and a mule. And we're going to make sure all you and your friends can vote. And they walk past it and there's like more things happening. And then I was like, oh my God, that's supposed to be horrifying. Like it took me a second to realize like, oh no, 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 no. This movie's not telling us that's like, like black people voting is a good thing. And that I didn't, it doesn't even, it just is embedded in this moment where all of these things are happening, where they're like, they're passing other people and all of this stuff is supposed to make it seem like the slaves being let free or this is the worst thing that ever happened. And then that, somebody said like that line gets said and I was like, oh great, I'm wonderful. Like, that, like everybody's going to vote. And I was like, oh no, this movie thinks this is bad. Like, and yeah, yeah, it's, it's the sort of thing like it's genuinely disturbing to just think that like, oh, like this was something that, I mean, it makes sense obviously if you know anything about American history, but like it's, well, yeah, like, the, it's disturbing. The, VRA, the Voting Rights Act is still 25 years away at this the point this movie comes out basically. Yeah. That's is, 65. It's like, you know, I think we just have this very like naive view of like the longevity of history or the lack thereof. Like 1939 feels so long ago. But Olivia de Havilland is still alive suing Ryan Murphy. She is. She is. And we stand. um, And at that point, the Civil War had ended in 1865. This is 60 years away from that. They should be more that that sentiment shouldn't be there. It shouldn't, you know? It's such a weird thing to wrap your head around. Like, I don't know. That's why I really just think, like, Spike Lee opening Black Klansman with that scene is such, like, a powerful Mm -hmm. visual statement. And, like, I don't know. It's the sort of thing, like, we need need to recontextualize this movie at the very least. And, like, I don't know. Again, I've never met somebody in my adult life who has unqualifiably loved um, Gone with the Wind, but I'm, like, terrified, too, because I kind of be like, like, explain yourself before we talk anymore. 
Yeah, it's funny when I when I met my college roommate, who again is a nice person, um, <laughs> believes in vaccines, is a doctor, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> definitely never said a racist thing to me. Um, it like I didn't really know much about it at the time. I just knew it was this like great American novel or whatever, mm-hmm. um, and all of all of the sort of recontextualizing of it happened later, which is I think again the thing that's like we can't just keep saying it was a great thing or like that it was very influential that I I think it's the reason I I would say like, we can't get rid of it as part of the canon. You, we should all be forced to watch it and like reconcile with our horrors every 20 years or something. Do you know what I mean? Like, it it is such a necessary document of like everything that we did. We, we integrated into our mythology as Americans and then didn't realize was embedded so deep. Again, it is this in 2014 when you first watch it or when you last watched it, it was the voted the second <laughs> favorite book of all Americans after the fucking Bible. That's insane. Like that is basically it is second to only religion and is close to in in people's minds. That's frightening. I gotta talk to readers. Like it's like even the, the, the Bible at number one. I'm like, hey, but like, I don't know. Like, have you read other books? Like, they read Harry Potter number three. <laughs> oh god! Everybody should look up that poll. It's the the list is wild. I kept I had to read it like six times to be like, is this? Am I having an aneurysm? What's going on? <laughs> Um, is the Bible yeah. even a book? Like it's like I know it's like it's like a text, but do we like hold it in the same category? I don't know. This is our this is our Bible podcast. Yeah, I yeah, really reading the Bible, um, <laughs> not in the gay way, not the not the like <laughs> literal way. Um, yeah, uh, it's I don't know the thing about it too that I think also doesn't um, that I I actually have more complex feelings about, and I know you'll have complex feelings about than I originally did is the whole fucking central romance, which is really the driving mm. factor of all this is it is the, the civil war and all that shit is like the backdrop. The foreground is like Vivian or sorry, not Vivian Scarlett O'Hara and Rhett Butler's grand romance over like 30 years or whatever. Um, and you said it in your letterbox review of like, it's literally, there's like marital rape going on. Yeah. Can I, I actually, so it's funny. Um, when I first watched the film back in 2014, yeah. I obviously had heard in so many conversations in classes at college and that thing, like about the racist aspect of the film. So yeah. I was prepared for that, putting it on. I had no idea about that. Like, I mean, it's off screen, but like that yeah. suggestion of rape and yeah. let alone that it was closely associated to like one of the most famous lines in all of cinema history. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what <laughs> like watching it like it's like that has never been part of the stories about that quote when i heard it it's no. insane like and no one really talks about that problematic aspect of the film well that's the fascinating thing is that because is that that has been recontextualized even later in history than the slavery aspect in a weird way this i like marital rape was not even a thing you could go to jail for up and basically until like until like 30 years ago which is like look yeah. at what happened to Lorena Bobbitt you know what i mean 
Um, granted, she cut that dude's dick off, but like, you, you know, the, it was only about that and not the fact that there, she was also beaten before that by him. Um, sorry, there's a siren going by. Um, I swear I didn't do anything. <laughs> I haven't stolen anything. Uh oh, we're gonna yeah. hear it live on air. <laughs> so hold on, I gotta I gotta hide some stolen paintings in the back. Um, yeah, is that that has been recontextualized in this century that that sexual dynamic, and also there is I can I think there is a a weird thing like the first time I read it I was like Brett Butler is a flaming pile of shit I hate him so much. And oddly, this time I watched it and went, oh, I understand sort of what was appealing about this back in the day. And that like he being that sexually open with her allows her to be sexually open in a way that was not allowed for women basically until the pill arrived in the 70s. Yeah, I remember like, reading. I don't I don't know where. I mean, there's probably so there's so much textbook mm. on with the winds like um how like his like shirt like I don't even know if he ever takes his shirt off in the film but like he's shown like in like deep V's a lot and like near shirtless and it like was like probably like revolutionary at the time like it's like that had never had like sex had never been on screen that way well we're we're so embedded in the female gaze now that we don't even and also like the, the the homosexual male gaze in film now that we don't even remember that it used to be something that did not exist like literally didn't exist realistically like you know now we get to see fucking chris evans as captain america do like chop wood and like women are dead in the street but like clark gable wearing a open (laughs) neck shirt in 39 was like the height of it so like and then and truly his character being so sexually empowered and like focused on on and knowing how to create pleasure in her when she's when and he literally said there's that line where he's like listen you were married to a boy and you were married to an old man you need to get like he says kiss but what he really means is like you need to get fucked the right way essentially <laughs> like <laughs> that was the subtext there <laughs> yeah the subtext is truly like i'm gonna fuck you so good that you're gonna like it's gonna change the way you think of fucking and truly she does like the next morning she wakes up and like birds are singing and she can't <laughs> stop giggling and it's her like her hair is more voluminous than it's ever been. Her her skin is clear. It's incredible. Like, I love looking at the way old movies coded sex. Like oh. where it's wait till we get to from here to eternity. I'm gonna go on like a full speech about like <laughs> truly the coding of the sex in this is insane. And like that must have been liberating for women who literally weren't allowed to like have property. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, Gosh. <laughs> like you can't we didn't even get credit cards until the 50s without our husband signing them it's like it it truly or like 60s actually so like it's wild that like that there is something there even though now it's completely objectionable but there is something there about like he respects her as a person who wants to have a job he never tries to stop her from from making her own money um he like says you don't have to do it, like and like let's go away together and really focus on our marriage, which is totally valid, honestly. Like, <laughs> sure, yeah, absolutely. That's that's a good point. Um, like and like complains about the fact that he's she's obviously in love with someone else, but like it, it there he does give her a a sort of like place of power that no like is is unique to that time and she is also in control of her power in a way that's unique to that time and that 
She is a working woman. She does not, she basically has no concern for the way people talk about her. Like everybody's like, she's a slut who works. And she's like, fuck off. I'm going to drive my carriage myself. You assholes. Um, again, not in so, so those words, but very close. Um, <laughs> I wish it was those words that make this movie so it, much more fun. It's as close as you could like for the time period, it's all there. Um, and she has her own jobs. She marries, um, marries people in a completely mercenary way. She never marries for love. She only does it for the furthering of her, her, well, like as revenge on some level <laughs> for the first one. Um, but like the furthering of her financial state, um, and she saves her family's farm and becomes basically the patriarch of her family. Like in a time again, when she, she wouldn't have been able to do any of that. So there is like something to admire in Scarlet, even though she is, deeply and completely unlikable and when i was whatever 19 or 20 or whatever when i read the book i thought that was a major problem but we've talked about this on other podcasts before but like there is something liberating in in a female character not having to be likable and like scarlet is a, an anti-hero in many ways she makes a lot of fucking mistakes and they're it's easy to dislike her for that but it's also like what a privilege to see a woman get to make mistakes in this time period in 1939. I just always wonder with like films made, I mean, honestly you could do it with any film, but like specifically films made before the 1960s, like when there's a woman who is like unlikable in a way that makes her a complex character and like a more well-written character, is it, like, how is the film capturing her? And I just don't know if the movie wants us to praise her for being an unlikable person. Yeah. Or if it's, like... I mean, that the rape scene in it is so much, like... I mean, it was just what it was like at the time. Like, it's, like... It was just viewed as, like, she needed to have it. It's, like, the punishment she... She needed to get fucked, yeah. Yeah, it's so awkward and... Yeah, I, I mean, I think the book and, and everything ultimately do... I, I mean, like, my reading of it as mm-hmm. sort of, like there are ways to feel empowered by it, I think is a, is a very post feminist or, you know, not post feminist, like third wave, fourth wave feminist thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I, she definitely, she absolutely gets punished for everything she does within the book. Absolutely. And the movie and the movie she's punished completely. He leaves her at the end. She only realizes that she's in love with him when he, when he leaves basically. Yeah. <laughs> Just it's, it's, it's a weird fucking movie to approach. Like, I don't It's like such impeccable filmmaking and such just like grossness around it. Yeah. I mean, I really think it's like this incredibly moving, fantastic um, delivery system for an awful way of life and thinking and an idea uh, like ide- ideology. It's horrible. And it and it's. The re- I think the reason it lasts is because that delivery system is so good and so, like, easy to swallow, mm-hmm. especially in the movie. I think it's a little more difficult in the in the book when you're sitting there for a thousand pages and, like, seeing her really be horrible to every black person she approaches. Um, and, like, they really – they de-emphasize it in the film the sort of point that like slaves are this idea that slaves were better off beforehand but it's a big part of the the book which is um unconscionable obviously (laughs) just it's unconscionable (laughs) there's just no other word for it yeah um yeah it's a difficult thing to contend with and i i don't know it's um it's tough um but let's we have talked about a lot and we should move on to 
some of the other um, movies this year. Unless, do you have anything else you want to say about? I mean, we're going to talk about it more, obviously. Yeah, it'll come. Anything yeah, I think that's worth come. talking will come up. <laughs> yeah, it won eight awards. What can you say? Um, but there are a lot of other great films this year. Um, I'm going to read them all very quickly off. Actually, no, let's just go through one by one. Um, to one that I know you love, so I'm just going to like let you fucking fly with it. Um, Dark Victory, starring Betty Davis as a young woman who gets sick uh, at the beginning. It's a tumor. Um, and then she falls in love with her doctor. And then they realize they didn't get it all. And she basically is like, "If I, once I start to go blind again, that means I'm going to die in like three hours. And bitch, they go for it. <laughs> it is a movie. Like, I loved it, for one thing. It, it was my first. I watched it for the first time ever while preparing for this episode. Oh, wow. And, um... It's so fucking good. Like, it's like, I didn't know what to expect while putting it on because, like, you read the plot about this, like, it's a melodrama about a woman going blind and falling in love with a doctor. And I'm like, I don't really know what that means. We don't make movies like this anymore. And then, <laughs> Sadly. Yeah. And, but then by the end of it, I was like, why don't we make movies like this anymore? Like, I'm like, give me a movie like this. Um, there should be a dying 25-year-old blind girl in every movie, frankly. And I just love... Um, Roger Ebert had a term for it that I cannot remember right now of just like, like Hollywood diseases where it's like, she just like senses at some point, like, yep, I'm going to die soon. And like, <laughs> just it's kind so of... good cause she's outside <laughs> gardening with her friend and she's like, Oh, it's got dark all of a sudden. Why? The, like what? Is, oh, oh, it's got so cloudy all of a sudden. Her friend's like, no, it did it. <laughs> it's so good. It is, but it sounds like we're making fun of it, listeners. But no, it's a it's a masterpiece. It's so good. It is that sort of melodrama that, like, honestly, you can't fully reproduce today. It's like there's something about it being like on like these obviously theatrical sets and like with these old fashioned, just like <laughs> like um, Atlantic accents that they all like to do. Um, mid Atlantic, like, yeah. Mid it's like it's like. It's so just fun to watch and just deeply entertaining. And um, Betty Davis is just a legend. Like, she is such a great actress. And um, in just a few episodes, we'll be talking about, like, what I think is commonly considered her best performance and may, like, very well be. But this is a really, really good performance. And the sort of performance that I just think, like, if this had come out in any other year, she would have won Best Actress. I think even in the Inside Oscar book, which you and I are both reading, we mentioned it in the last episode, I remember reading that, like, I don't even know if this is true. Like, they thought she was, like, a few votes off from yeah. winning Best Actress. They said, yeah, the voting was apparently very, very close. And, and, and she had, you know, everybody kind of thought it was between her and Vivian Lee the whole time. And, like, if she would have won best actress for that first of all it would have really changed the course of film history of just like her like because betty davis for those who don't know like her whole narrative is that she was owed an oscar like a thousand times in her career but, yeah um like it's just it's so interesting i don't know she's so good in this movie she's so so good in this yeah movie. maybe her and joan crawford never would have thought about anything if if she had just won this one but uh, we'll, we'll talk about it later we'll talk about it later um yeah, it's a fucking masterpiece and like perfectly pitched melodrama. And the cast is wild, by the way. Yeah, like, Ronald Reagan is in this movie, people. <laughs> fucking young Ronnie is like a just a gadabout who just like sort of circles 
her. And like, this is the great thing about it is that she's got like all these beautiful fucking men circling her. I mean, actually her doctor is like the oldest and sort of most boring, but like, whatever. Humphrey Bogart, (laughs) he's pretty handsome. He's got a nice mustache. Humphrey Bogart is like a horse fucking trainer who like works for her. And at one point he like literally confesses his love to her. And she's just like, I can, I'm in love with my doctor. And I was like, bitch, fuck the horse man. What are you doing? Um, (laughs) shout out to Humphrey Bogart. Um, yeah, it's, it's like, it's a whole thing. And that final half hour, God damn, is some high packed emotion, like high intensity emotional stuff because she's about to die. She knows she's going to die because she's her, she's gone blind. Um, and her friend is there and like, she's like, and the husband is supposed to like go to some conference right then. He finds out he has to go to a conference and she's like, we can't let him go. I don't want him to like sit here crying over me. I want him to live his life. Like if he doesn't go now, like this will ruin his career. So they have to like pretend she's not going fucking blind. So it's like Betty Davis, like (laughs) real slightly walking around the house, trying like pretending to pack his stuff. Well, she is packing his stuff, but she's like doing it while pretending she's not, she can't, she can still see. It is brilliant. And it, doesn't look stupid like you know if you if that were an snl skit, you know exactly what it would look like but it doesn't look like that it looks you t- it's you fucking buy the shit because like her friend and her just keep looking at each other and you're just like damn girls get it get that fucking oscar nomination for <laughs> like just burn this shit down it is so fucking good and even I saw this, it. oh sorry no, no, go ahead, go ahead. Um, even, like, the scenes where they're diagnosing her, and it's, like, he keeps doing all these medical tests, like, like very <laughs> basic checkup stuff that I get done every time I go for a, an annual checkup, and I've never once been like, oh, shit, do they think I'm going blind? I have a tuba. <laughs> yeah, but, like, it's so good. Like, it's so suspenseful, and, like, yeah. genuinely very, like, it was very dynamically filmed, and... Yeah, it's beautifully God, filmed. so good. Yeah. Watch it's Dark a, Victory, everybody. <laughs> everybody should watch Dark Victory. I watched it. I didn't have to watch it again because I actually saw it not that long ago. But I was like, nah, like I'm going to skip Dark Victory. I'm not fucking stupid. This is the greatest. <laughs> I, I was so happy to watch it again. It's phenomenal. Um, the next um, nominee is Goodbye, Mr. Chips, which is um, it's like a it takes place over like 60 years. It's set in Britain and was filmed there. Um, it's about a teacher um, at a boys' school whose name is Ch- – Ch- I don't – well, they call him Mr. Chips, obviously. Um, <laughs> that's all you really need to know. Um, and uh, he falls in love with Greer Garson at some point, and then she dies in childbirth. Spoiler, spoiler. You're not going to watch this one, people. Of all the ones, why would you watch anything but Dark Victory? Um, and, uh, yeah, for me it's about – I know you're not a fan of it, and we will definitely certainly get to that, but um, – I didn't love it either, but I will say Greer Garson is fucking phenomenal in it, and she should have been in it longer because she's the best thing in it. Um, that little love story is fantastic. And I do think it is a movie about um, America and England playing out their anxieties over the oncoming war through the lens of still dealing with the the war that really only happened about 20 years ago at this point. And, and like... It's about losing a generation of young men in, you know, the teens and then facing again in 39 the prospect of losing yet another generation of young men in in a war. And really, they, it was an even worse war for England. I mean, they got the shit bombed out of them. So it's not a, it's not a great movie, but I do think it works on some levels. And I, I do understand why it worked for people then. Yeah, no, I agree. I, it's not that I'm not a fan of it. It's more just like I'm like... It's a film. It is a movie <laughs> that I watched. And 
Um, like, in the context of where it, like, when it was released, it makes yeah. so much sense. And you can honestly, like, I felt nothing watching it, but, like, mm-hmm. you can watch it and totally get what people at the time probably felt. Yeah. I think there are some films from that era that, similarly, I don't feel anything from, <laughs> but, like, like you can still like I think the emotion's more palpable and like you yeah. can kind of more feel things more, but like this one's this one's fine. Like I'm just like you know, it's it's just it's very like I don't know that like uh, I don't I don't want to say cheesy. It's such a simple word, but like it's so wholesome and like yeah. Well, it feels dated. Do you feel? I mean, it felt dated to me in a way that um, Dark Victory and even Gone with the Wind don't in terms yes. of its filmmaking. It felt so like stagey and stilted and 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 the even the cinematography wasn't very interesting they're on that mountain at one point it's just some fake fucking mountain it looks absurd yes my big thing with a lot of old movies that i don't know why this bothers me but Mm. child actors in movies from like like the 30s and 40s they and even like we'll be talking about a movie next week from the 80s with child actors that is like oof but um yeah like the children in this movie, I thought, were so fucking annoying for some reason. <laughs> and I was sitting there, and I'm like, oh, my God. Like, it's like, it's like, grow up. But, yeah. um, well, I think I think the way you, you summed it up perfectly when you quoted um, uh, Claire, uh, what's her face from? Claire Foy. Um, Claire Foy from First Man. And it was just, you're just a bunch of boys in a sort of annoyed way. And I think, I mean, honestly, I think that's the perfect end note to it, honestly. Yeah. You, you um, summed it up. One one little funny joke from I was watching it um, by myself, but my brother came home from somewhere um, and like sat in the room for five minutes, you know, nothing about the movie. And I turned to him, he's like, "This movie's pretty gay," and I'm just like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, it is not intended to be that way, nope. but you know, they were deeply repressed back then. Yeah, they they make they make a point of throwing Greer Garson in front of a mountain just to get him to show that he's not a you know homosexual. Yeah, <laughs> shocking. Um, <sighs> the next nominee is Love Affair, which I watched a while ago, and um, I, you know I'm not. It's basically the same story that they use in affair in an affair to remember, which came out much later with a. Uh, I mean, it's been remade a million times. A woman, a man and a woman meet, then something happens to the woman in an affair to remember. She gets amnesia because she gets like hit by a car or something. Here she gets like hit by a car, but she um, is like uh, crippled from the waist down, essentially, which is um, fucking wild. Um, And then decides like that, that makes her unworthy, which is horrifying to think of um, now. Um, It's uh, done is the, the, the lead is very good in it. Um, that's all I can say about it. Um, what did like Irene Dunn does does a nice job in it, and it had a, a decent song in it. What are your thoughts? <laughs> so yeah, I have a very funny story about this movie. Um, I came home today, opened my laptop up, got IMDb up to so I can look at it as we're podcasting. Saw the movie there. And thought in a panic, I didn't watch one of the movies that was nominated. And then I was like... <laughs> it was like the first one you watched, bro. <laughs> it was. I watched it, like, right after we both, like, made a schedule on how we're going to watch these all. And then, like, I watched it. And I have 
I enjoyed it at the time. I really liked it at the time. And I was like, this is like, you know, it's dated and problematic. And like the way that, like you said, she is just like, well, I'm crippled. Time to never do anything anymore. I can never be loved by this man who literally already loves me. Yeah. But like, you know, I was like watching it. Like, this is like a fun movie. There's there's kids in it that are super fucking annoying. But like, but like, I was like, you know, it's, it's clever. Not clever. It's like just, it's fun. And then I completely forgot about it. And did not think about it again until literally just now. So, you know, oh man, yeah, it's, that's... it's charming. I don't know if they had five best picture no- nominations. I can't imagine it getting on there. <laughs> it would not have been nominated for a oh, full stop. Full stop. Um, the next one is Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, which uh, I saw in high school or something. You know, we I, we watched it in school or something for I don't know, probably American government or something like that. Um, and I I. St- I loved it then, and I still quite like it now. It and I, it's utterly naive, but there is something really appealing in the idea that like one man from who it's Jimmy Stewart as just like a fucking camp counselor or a Boy Scout fucking leader or whatever. He like gets put into Congress essentially, and then finds out there's corruption, and then by basically just filibustering, he um, changes America. And it's so stupid, but like. And in this day of political horrors, I, it is sort of nice to watch someone just like the idea that like one man talking some sense to to corrupt politicians could like change change the world. It's it's you know it's fine. Yeah, so I have an interesting relationship with this movie because I watched it. I don't know off the top of my head what year it was the first time I watched it. I but I reviewed it on Letterboxd, so it must have been at least. The, the the late the latest 2013 but mm-hmm. or the earliest 2013 and i didn't like it at the time i did like i i my review on letterbox was so vague from that period where i don't even quite know what i didn't like about it but i just remember it really rubbing me the wrong way and um I don't know. Like, if people haven't noticed, a lot has changed in America since <laughs> 2013. So you know, I watched it this weekend, and. On one level, I was definitely more moved by the core idea um, of, like, you know, like, one person can be a force of good in politics and everything. And, um, you know, like, the importance of, have, of like, valuing just people. And I'll get to this in a minute. But, like, the importance of valuing people in America over greed or whatever but like like you said it's super naive about the way it approaches politics to a point where it's like it's kind of funny that like the main driving force of tension is that he wants like to build a boy scouts camp and i'm like i mean like, he wants to build like a bunch of boy scouts camp boy, boy scout camps to like teach the the young boys of america how to become leaders and like that's that's actually the thing that doesn't work for me now is yeah. that like I could have bought that as a kid because I would have inserted my own self into that or like women into that narrative then without thinking. Cause I would have been like, Oh, we're different now. We, we would, this is different. And I, little, young me did not know the ways of the world yet. And me now is just like so resentful of the way that he just, he keeps emphasizing men. And like at this point there had been female senators granted there had only been five, but we don't see any in this movie and he makes no point about like how are we going to teach the women of America to lead? You know, it, like it's they're so excluded from the narrative in a way that's like particularly upsetting because the only reason this dumb motherfucker from the country succeeds is that he has probably the greatest Gal Friday of 
all time mm-hmm. in Gene Gene Arthur's Cl- Clarissa Saunders. Um, she is like she's been in she's been in uh, like a, an aide in Congress for years and years and years. She knows her shit. She's fast talking. She's real wry. She's she's seen it all. She's jaded. And then he comes in and she's like ready to hate him. And then she's like, oh, but Jimmy's so charming. Um, and I can't blame her for that. But Gene Arthur is so fucking good in this movie. And I will say the thing that was most shocking about rewatching this was I did not realize until watching this movie how much that Gene Arthur performance had an effect on me. In in that, I she's Clarissa Saunders is the reason I will stand a fucking snarky blonde in a nice skirt who like is telling a man what to do and like like getting shit done like through careful study and sheer force of will even if she has to like force like like use a guy to do it it like humbled me because i was like oh my god this is the reason i like every character i've liked ever since do you know what i mean like it was like it was shocking she's so good in this movie like Oh my god! Like it, it honestly mainly succeeds because of her. Like yeah. every scene she's in has just so much life in it. She has she has like a very modern sensibility. Like she's playing it like every actor from the thirties played that played in movies where it's very stagey. But yeah. like, um, but it's so she makes that snark and that like charm so effortless, which is shocking because she was originally she's been she this she was not originally a sound actress. Not a lot of people made it from from silent to to sound. And she did. And, like, I can't imagine, like, what if we had never gotten to hear this woman speak? She is fucking whip smart. It's fantastic. She's so good. But, yeah, like you said, there's this irony to it that, like, in the film, like, in the film's plot, he only succeeds because of her health. And that it's, like, his speech is so much about, like, what about the boys? What are they going to do? And then even, I mean, like, as a queer man, like, it's, like, the Boy Scouts didn't let queer members join until like the 2010s like i was or maybe the 2000s but it was definitely like within our lifetime within our lifetime yeah and i mean i was never a boy scout i was never remotely interested going outside nope but um like it's just the sort of thing where i like you watched it and i was like this is very narrow about who they mean yeah like to become leaders of, leaders of America. Even yeah. look at, like, they actually show in the scenes where he's with the Boy Scouts, they're, like, by 1930 standards, more diverse than what you expect to see in the, <laughs> But, like, none of the... Right, there's, like, one black boy, and I was like, wow, shocking. Yeah, and I think there's one Asian boy early in the film mm, as well, mm-hmm, very mm-hmm, briefly. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, neither of them speak. No speaking. The no rest speaking. of them are very white. Yeah. So... Like, it's the sort of thing where you do watch it and it's like, you kind of have to turn a bit of a side eye to it. Like, oh, yeah. like, but who do you really mean? Like, I don't know. But, you know, it is a very charming movie. It's much more charming than I remember it being. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I know what's changed, but like, like <laughs> between 2013 and 2019, like... It, it's become more likable. <laughs> yeah, every everything's changed. <laughs> it's so different. No, it's true. I mean, I, not to read you to filth, but I remember reading your original um, review, and I was like, "Oh, sweet, sweet Matt, he is going to change his mind so hard on this." Like, but again, it, like I said to you afterwards, I was like, "Listen, in 2013, we thought we'd done it. We thought we had solved America's problems." Like we were like, God, with the wind never had a deep impact on our our thinking of ourselves. We're fine. And then shit happened. Society was like, 
bitch you thought. Like yeah, <laughs> society was like, LOL, fuck you. Um, God. Boy, have we learned what a filibuster is. Um, <laughs> the next one is Nanochka, which I also happened to see fairly recently just out of um, – I was a friend of mine and I were watching a bunch of Lubitsch films and this was the third one we watched. And I think it's God, I thought it was so boring because it's a post um, Hayes code, which is um, the way that the movie industry started to um, regulate its, its content. Um, it started in 1930, but it wasn't really enforced until 1934. And then it, it basically goes on until 1968. So we're in the heart of it right now. Um, and it, uh, I didn't, the, the, it's about a, a Russian woman, a Soviet woman who comes to uh, Paris to learn about infrastructure. And then she falls in love with a, an American man um, and he loosens her up. Yeah. Um, this yeah. movie has a weird plot. Like, I did but, not read the plot when it started, yeah. before it started. And I was like, oh, wait, this is what it's about? <laughs> Do you know the wildest thing about that plot, though, is that there is another movie that has the same plot. <laughs> Do you know that? No, I did not. <laughs> it's a it's a musical called Silk Stockings, starring starring Sid Charisse as the Soviet woman, um, and yeah, it's a musical. It comes out like thirty years later. It it's a well, not that long. It's like twenty years later, and yeah, it shockingly, this is not the only time a Soviet woman <laughs> comes to the West to learn about infrastructure, and then. And then falls in love with an American. Uh, so, but that one's in color and um, and a musical. So yeah, watch that. Uh, yeah, it's a wild story and makes no sense. And they have no chemistry. Yeah, that was my biggest thing. I think Greta Garbo is so so funny in this movie. Mm-hmm. I laughed out loud numerous times at just her like deadpan reactions to things, and she, she's hysterically here. She has. Zero chemistry with Melvin, Melvin Douglas. He is giving nope. her nothing to work with. Ugh. It is it is a metaphor for most heterosexual relationships. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh my god, like this is so weird because like I want to love this movie so much. I'm having so much fun whenever she's on screen, but like he's so boring like yeah. it is the sort of thing where you could just imagine what this would have been like if she had any other co-star from the era literally anyone else from the Lubitsch films including like you know she, like like a couple years prior there was there was a uh, design for living has Frederick March and fucking Gary Cooper and it, one of them somebody who's like really hot G- Cooper or like can really act circles around someone March who I, I would listen I wouldn't push Frederick March out of bed I want to be very clear about that but Cooper look at him um like <laughs> if she had had one of them it would have been a, such a different thing but like you're t- they the two of them have no chemistry and I think I think the reason it it worked then and doesn't work now is because of the context of the time and like up to that point in her career, um, Garbo had been known for only being in tragedy. And they, they marketed this film as like Garbo laughs, like, cause nobody had really ever seen it. And she was like a recluse at this point. She never, she didn't even come to the Oscars. Um, because I don't think she, yeah, like she hated going out. I mean, she wanted to be left alone essentially. Um, and this was a couple of years, like a year after she, there was this infamous article, um, in the independent, it was written on behalf of the independent theater owners of America for the independent film journal. And she, there was this, this guy, his name is Harry Brandt. He wrote this article that was basically like, these are the, the stars we, we don't want to see films from anymore. And they were, he called like, that's where the term box office poison comes from. And he listed a couple stars and Garbo, Joan Crawford, Catherine Hepburn, Fred Astaire, and a bunch of other people were included as box office poison. So 
they made this film essentially to refute the idea that she was box office poison. And, and it made a shitload of money and changed the way people thought of her. But like, yeah, I, I think it probably worked for people better then because of all that context. Yeah, and also that article's hysterical because it's like, uh, like you're wrong about some of these stars, man. Have you I mean, have you ever read it? It's wild. It, like, it's such a nasty thing to say. And like, those are just I just picked out some of those people. Like Fred Astaire, are you joking? Like, I could see like they thought his career was done because like most of his his musical hits are like twenties and thirty or thirties realistically and forties. But like the man works until he fucking dies, basically. Like. It's it's so dumb to think that like anyone ever thought like Fred Astaire's career was over. Also, jo- Joan Crawford and Catherine Hepburn, are you insane? It's insane. <laughs> oh God, the the yeah. like we still publish a lot of articles like that about like who's out and everything like that, like who people just don't care about anymore. But yeah. it's just funny, like like gossip was so mean in the thirties and forties in Hollywood. Oh, it's much like, worse then, yeah, much worse. <laughs> Because I think libel laws and stuff like that change some more in the middle of the century than they than they yeah. did. Like there, it was a wild west. Then um, next one is of Mice and Men, adapted from the novel of the same name. <laughs> uh, it's directed by Lewis Milestone. It stars Lon Chaney Jr. and Burgess Meredith. Um, Lon Chaney Jr. plays uh, Lenny, you know, the uh, the big guy. Um, it is uh, the intensely misogynistic. Um, that's the whole point of the book. Uh, these men just dream of having a farm and then some slut comes along and ruins their lives. Um, I, it's, it's hard to watch. I, I used to like this book when I read it in high school, but I, this, it didn't age very well. Although the rest of it aged fairly well, because again, this is coming at the end of, end of technically the last year of the depression. Um, and it's this idea of like how hard it is to live in America. And I think the thing that still resonates about it for me is it's sort of about the lie of the American dream, or at least how limited it is to achieve that dream. Like you have to be an able-bodied slash able-minded, like white man. They don't even have to mention the straightness. Like, Mm. so like I could see why it would be meaningful for people in the middle of the depression who like were sort of unable to achieve anything. And, you know, only a couple years out from like the sort of rah-rah Americanism and and economic boom of the, of world war two. But it doesn't read well now. Yeah, it's like I read the book twice, once in high school and once in college. Oh, wow. And um not by choice, because even in high school I I did not really care about the book. But yeah. um it's kind of remarkable how little even in college classes the mm-hmm. book is contextualized and like hey like this book's pretty misogynistic i mean like yeah. it's it's kind of crazy and it was something where it's like i think i always like i don't remember exactly what i was thinking when i read it in college but i remember like i probably i hope like was like hey like this book's pretty sexist but like watching the movie i was like oh my god like i truly forgot how like misogynistic this movie is but um yeah or this story is. And I actually think I, I totally agree with what you mean about like this was probably so meaningful at the time about the American dream. And like the I mean, look at how many books from that era are about the like the foolishness of the American dream and everything. I think yeah, it's, I mean, John Steinbeck made a fucking career of it, you know, <laughs> I think he explores it better, actually, in Grapes of Wrath, which is also yeah. a better film, I think, from the 40s, I want to say. But yeah, it's, um, it's much later than this. Yeah. But um the movie, it's even removing the context of like, oh, it's pretty sexist. Um, 
it didn't work for me really. I I'm was really unmoved by it the entire time. I mean, I am definitely totally owning up to the fact that it's like I do not like this book that it's based on. It means nothing to me. I hate the Gary Sinise version from the nineties. Um and like Oh, I you know, Grapes of Wrath is the very next year. I'm sorry. Oh, really? it feels so much. No, I really thought it was like a good decade later. <laughs> yeah, me too. Well, I think it's just I think that speaks to how like again, this like Mr. Chips, this feels a little um like a little bit stuck in the past. Like we're still yeah. in the 20s almost the, with the way this film was made. The performances in it are so even by like the standard of the time where it's very stagey no matter what movie you're in, it, I think are truly terrible in this movie. Yeah. Like the yeah. I'll look up her name right now. Um, the, the girl um, who plays the slut. <laughs> I mean, my God, it is such a bad performance. <laughs> Betty Fields. Um, yeah. If she didn't work, I don't think she really worked again much after that. And boy, did she not deserve to. No, it's I mean, she's given nothing to work with. But even by that standard, it's like, yeah. oh, it's a bad performance. And the one thing I will say, I love the score for it. <laughs> like I was like, oh, like this is pretty nice. Like, yeah, it's funny because like the th- the filmmaking is the best thing about it, even if it feels outdated, like the cinematography is very good, too. Mm hmm. Um, yeah, not a great film. Uh, Stagecoach is next, which is the, basically the, the quintessential Western. Um, it is directed by John Ford. Um, it is about a bunch of people in a stagecoach uh, traveling across some part of the West. Um, it is basically the movie that makes John Wayne a star. There's this in very famous um, shot where his character is introduced and he like turns around and there's like a breeze and like there's a filter over the camera and it's like. It's a joke. It's a fucking joke at how much like they're like, look at this hot man. <laughs> like he's a he's a he's a cowboy. Um, and it made it truly it made him a star because he had been in things before this, but never this was the moment. Um, and uh, the people would probably know basically understand it best of thinking of that very last segment in um, the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. They're basically just doing a shitty knockoff of Stagecoach. <laughs> Right? I mean... No, yeah, honestly. I like this movie actually quite a bit. Um, I love this movie. It's it's a really fun movie. Like, I, um, I'm i not a huge Western fan. I mean, actually, I don't know. I guess it's a little unfair. It's more like I watched all the ones that are, like, commonly considered classics of, like, the 30s and 40s and 50s and was generally unmoved by them so i was like okay i saw the big ones and now i can go on the yeah. left but um very quick question that yes. is totally off topic you ever seen johnny guitar as a kid actually my grandpa loves it okay i was gonna say you gotta see johnny guitar because it's got joan crawford i do have to watch. oh no i did watch that one okay never mind. i'm confusing it with something else i did watch that one that's a good one yeah <laughs> that's a I was very gonna say if you movie. didn't like johnny guitar I'm, we're, this is over that's a very great gay movie <laughs> um but no, um, I confuse that with something else that I cannot remember that my grandpa loves. My grandpa, like most white grandpas, loved westerns. Probably Shane or something. Probably. Um, it's um, it's it's a good it's a good out of all of John Wayne's ones, it's one of the ones that has aged the best, weirdly enough, because like it's not often cringy or anything like that. Well, it's it's bizarrely progressive. Like the character dynamics are really interesting because he basically comes in and is like this cowboy type. And, and there's this woman who's like a Southern woman who is clearly has money and everybody's treating her nice. And then there's the, the literally a prostitute who gets thrown out of town. 
And he puts them on equal level. Like he's like, no, these are both women. They both deserve respect. Like I am protecting both of them. I respect, I am totally falling in love with this prostitute. I don't give a shit about her past. It like totally works. And even now I was so surprised by how progressive that was. Yeah. It's like, I mean, it's funny. We were, as we're recording this, like, a few weeks ago, like maybe a month ago, there was yeah. that whole Twitter conversation about like John Wayne's canceled and everything like that, which was for like just sum up very quickly, like someone on Twitter on like found John Wayne's um, Playboy like, interview, Playboy interview, yeah, where he says some horrible things, and the, it's heinous, it's terrible, and the Twitter, the guy on Twitter was like, oh my god, can you believe this? Like these things he said, this is terrible, and it, it led to this very annoying Twitter conversation of like. A bunch of people being surprised because a part of me was like, this was known, people. Like, it's yeah. like... And yeah, to be clear, that that interview came out in, like, the 70s. Like, it, it was not a secret that John Wayne was a really terrible person. And, um... But then at the same time, you had all these very cynical people who were like, oh my god, like, we're just going to cancel dead people now, too? And I'm just like, it's important that we always learn as a film culture about this history because, like, you know... A lot of movies that John Wayne has made are canonized as, like, great films without any, again, like, without any qualification. And some of those movies are pretty, pretty bad. Like, with, like, when you look at it in, like, a perspective of, like, gender and race and everything. But, yeah, like... Uh, yeah, he was not a good guy, at, no. like, realistically. Like, and, 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 uh, and this movie is kind of racist, too. I mean, there's a lot of sort of coding about... Um, Native Americans is just like pure evil. There's not a good mm-hmm. one in here. Like they're all just like cannon fodder in a way. Um, but that's the, the case reason for like every Western. Yeah. And that's, that's crazy. basically the case for most Westerns. I mean, it, there, some of it starts to change near the end there. Um, like the wild bunch is probably a good one for that kind of thing. Um, and even the searchers on some, some of it, which is, has John Wayne in it. But the idea is that like, women can still be redeemed, but like <laughs> it's, it's still very complicated. Like even that yeah. I wouldn't say is fully, fully, um, a good thing, but yeah, this one ages beautifully and the it's, it looks great. The, the action is incredible. Um, it's still like, even for today, the action is incredible. There's this like stagecoach chase at the end where the native Americans are chasing the stagecoach. Um, and there's this moment where it looks like the Southern gentleman is going to like shoot the women to keep them from being taken by the native Americans. And it's like, Holy fuck, this is going to get really dark. And then it doesn't obviously. Um, but yeah, it's, um, it's wild. It's a really interesting thing. The character dynamics are really interesting. Um, and yeah, I love it. I I, I took a Western class in college, actually, just Ooh. for like my senior year. It was, it was just about Westerns. And this has always been one of my favorites. It's just, it's a really good Western. Criterion did a really wonderful release of it, which I actually own, which I did not know. <laughs> and so I have piles of movies just around my house that I, and occasionally I go through them and I'm like, I own this? Yeah. Like, <laughs> I, I just I just made a catalog for this project of all my DVDs because I needed to know what I needed to rent and, and everything. But yeah, like I have tons of them and I and I literally just made a catalog of them because of this, literally this, this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, the Wizard of Oz is next. Um this was uh, one of my favorite movies as a kid. I used to call it Beezabaz because I couldn't uh, pronounce the whole thing. Um, <laughs> it's it's great. I love this movie. It, it the music is wonderful. I don't. I do think it does feel more like a kids film the long the farther I get away from being a kid. Um, 
in like a negative way and that like i don't know it, it, the the narrative is a little a little loose um which i usually don't have a problem with but it just feels i don't know but the filmmaking is incredible i mean that switch from sepia black and white it was really sepia to, to color is incredible uh, it's 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 a great movie yeah, I this movie was such a staple in my childhood as I think it is for probably so many people. Yeah. Um not even just just this version of it. I probably saw versions of Mr. Devaz on stage countless times. And yeah. I don't know, maybe you'll remember this. I feel like this is that you might have known growing up. Like VH1 in the late nineties did a Wizard of Oz in concert for um their charity, VH1's big charity, like Save the Music or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, they did a concert with Jewel as Dorothy, um, Jackson Brown, I think Jackson Brown, Jackson Brown as the Scarecrow, Roger Daltrey as the Tin Man, and Nathan Lane as the Lion. And I watched that that version of The Wizard of Oz so many times as a kid. It is like a... Deborah all- Winger's in it? Oh, yeah, my oh my God, yes. It is so good. It's never been put on DVD, and it is like the... The only reason my family owns a VHS player anymore because we will actually occasionally watch it. It is, it was such the Wizard of Oz as a whole in multiple incarnations was such a staple of my life growing up, and even Wicked was to be honest. Like I, I must have seen this, but I have not remembered it. I barely like some of what you're saying sounds familiar, but I don't know for sure. And honestly, Deborah Winger plays the. The fucking Wicked Witch of the West, Lucy good. Arnaz. I mean, are you joking? Is uh, like Auntie M. This is wild. It's like, so good. <laughs> I'm gonna go totally watch it tonight. It? Oh my god, I'm gonna pass out. It's so good. Wizard of Oz, the 1939 film, is great. I Natalie Cole is Glenda the Good Witch. I'm sorry, I can't. This is you. Too much. You have to watch it. It's so good. Um, VH1, if you're listening, please release it on DVD. My family would really thank you. <laughs> um, but um, it's like the, the 1939 film, too, is just like I, I just, you know, maybe it's nostalgia. I love it so much. Yeah. It is. Yeah. I think there's something to say about the quality of its like production that it is still watched in like every generation and liked because there are so many movies when I was growing up from even after the thirties, like movies from the fifties or sixties or seventies that I was nineties that doesn't age well. Yeah. And that I was shown as a kid and did not like as a kid and did not appreciate it until I was an adult. Wizard of Oz, I loved unquestionably from when I was like two years old. So it's like, there is something about that power in the filmmaking that makes it so timeless. I think you're right. I mean, I think it does in some, there is something about it that sums up everything that is magical about film. And like the moment for me, well, I think, I mean, I think it's, it's intentional is that, um, that the moment when she opens the door of the farm, the little house, and all of a sudden the world beyond it is in full technicolor. Like Mm -hmm. that is the absolute distillation of the spectacle that, um, that filmmaking can bring. And it's also about like the switch, the, the, the changing in filmmaking itself. And like, that's (laughs) my favorite little anecdote about that is that that's like a real shot. There's no process to it. They just painted the inside to look sepia. So it's, it looks black and white because it's painted that way. And then they open it up like that's to color film the whole time. It's not like they took 
a piece of sepia black and white film and then they they also had like color film and they spliced it together no it's all just color technicolor film but they painted it to look as if it was sepia in the foreground and like change the arm so like there's one person with a painted arm with sepia <laughs> and then judy garland steps in to walk into the color like isn't that wild can you it's, imagine it's insane it is and it's funny um I think this is the first time anyone has brought up this movie in, like, five years. Um, there was that Oz the Great and Powerful in oh, 20... Wow. I want to say 2013. I'm pretty sure it was 2013. Something like that, yeah. With um, James Franco as the wizard that, like, came out within 10 years, should, by all intents and purposes, look good, and it looks so much worse than a movie made in 1939. Like, it's like... <laughs> it totally does. And... It, Again, no one talks about that movie anymore. That movie, I only bring up because I think it's so fucking weird. Like, yeah. that movie cost $200 million and no one remembers it. It, like, it, it. You know, it's funny. It came out exactly a year, like, a almost exactly a year ago from when we're, or, um, like, five, what, I guess, six years ago from when we're recording this. How funny. March 8th, 2013. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. I saw the, opening weekend with my family. <laughs> So did I. The best thing about it is the trailer, and they do it in the movie too, where they do the they recreate the same thing, where they, um, when you move from sepia tone world to to Oz world, it um it a turns color, but also changes the aspect ratio from the one three seven or whatever it is to yeah one three seven to what we do now, which is which is much wider. It's thrilling. It's fucking thrilling. Like that's the best thing about it, and that's. It's like going from one three seven to two three nine is incredible. Um, yeah, yeah, Matt, we, you're still there, right? <laughs> yes, yes, I'm still here. I'm still here. I'm thinking about how they cast Mila Kunis as the Wicked Witch, and it was, it's just a lot. Um, they don't even tell you that she like is revealed later to be the Wicked Yeah, spoilers for a movie that no one is going to go watch. No one's ever going to see this it. podcast. I thought I was like, oh my god, talking about Oz the Great and Powerful killed killed Matt. I can't believe it because <laughs> that movie just like. I was weirdly very excited for it. We I all think, were. I think because my family just like we are a Wizard of Oz family. Like it was Same. on so much when we were a kid. We saw Wicked at least twice, like on yeah. stage, and like we still fan cast it in my <laughs> like in my house with like whoever is successful at the time. I um, saw I saw Wicked with um, when it was in L.A. touring. I saw it uh, many years before Smash, but you know what? I saw it with Megan Hilty as Glinda, and Angelica Houston was three rows in front of us. It was like a prelude to Smash, and I didn't even know. That is weird destiny shit. Isn't that insane? (laughs) That is truly wild. (laughs) I think about that every day, honestly. (laughs) It was just like all of the – and like I I didn't even know I was going to live in New York then. It was such a – like all of this like – stuff falling into place that I didn't even know. It's like, life is weird. Um, We have one more film to talk about uh, for the Best Picture nominees. Um, It's Wuthering Heights. I hate this fucking movie because I hate this book. I've tried to read it three times. Never got past, like, chapter four Mm because I hate this this story. Um, I hate the couple. Um, It's a decent film version of it. Um, It's it's got Laurence Olivier. (sighs) 
and it made him a star. I don't know. I, they also filmed like it's supposed to take place um, in the English Moors, but it they they filmed it in the San Fernando Valley, which is honestly the funniest thing I've ever heard in my whole life. Um, <laughs> and it kind of shows. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. People are like, "Oh, it's so beautiful." And they're like, "No, it's totally San Fernando Valley." Um, what do you think of it? So it's funny. Um, when we first agreed to do this podcast, I was like, I'm going to read Wuthering Heights because I had just um, – You fool. <laughs> I had just bought the book from for like $5 at a bookstore and I was like, this is a book that I didn't read in school and I would like to read it. And I know myself and if I watch the movie before I read the book, I will never read the book. I read about 100 pages and I was like, life is short. And I am not <laughs> I enjoying like, this book. You probably stopped at the same word I do every single time. <laughs> I was just like, I am not enjoying this book. And I am like, it's not worth it. It's 100% not worth it. So I put it down and read something fun. But, um, <laughs> but like, I enjoyed the movie. I really do like gothic romances and like that particular era of literature that it's from. Yeah, I love a Bronte sister and this is Emily Bronte, but I don't know what doesn't work about it for me, honestly. It's the sort of thing. It's a very silly romance. And I think mm-hmm. even in the film, they never quite sell it. Like there are definitely some yeah. romance books from that era where you're kind of like, it, you have to you have to just divorce your modern sensibility because you're kind of like why are you with them? And this is one where it's so hard to because I'm like why what are you seeing each other? Like this is terrible. <laughs> you're both destroying each other. <laughs> yeah, they hate each other so much, and they're well, they love each other, but they're also terrible to each other. Terribly terrible to each other in a way that like exceeds Scarlet and Rhett Butler, which those two are really terrible to each other. So like they literally one of them rapes the other. Hello, and this is. This is actually worse for me. This whole fucking <laughs> this relationship. They hate. They're so awful, and they're like it's just so unpleasant. And like I don't understand. That said, the cinematography is incredible. Greg Toland won an award for it. Totally deserved it. San Fernando Valley looks great. I I've been to the San Fernando Valley. I thought it was England. <laughs> and I gotta say, I did really love Lawrence Olivier. It is Lawrence Olivier, right? Um, yes. Yeah, it's Lawrence okay. Olivier. Yeah. I was like, I, I'm 100% sure. Wait, now I'm not. But um, <laughs> no, Lawrence Olivier is really good in this movie. I mean, like a shock, right, people? But um, <laughs> Yeah, shockingly. Well, it, it is the film that made him a, a star in America, though. Yeah, you know, he's like, he's very handsome in it. He has this sort of like... He's dreamy as shit. Yeah, you're just like, I get it. Like, I'd fall in love with him. But then you're just like, geez, you have baggage. Like, yeah. <laughs> he has some real baggage. That severe forehead and those eyes—they're very bedroomy. And and he he was like a total like women just like exploded over him in in America. And and the fact that he was at the time engaged to, to Vivian Lee, who was Scarlett O'Hara, um, in in Gone with the Wind, like it was the like it was like Brangelina then. Do you know what I mean? Like it was yeah. such a tis like. People could not handle their shit. It was like the gossip mags were like fucking dying. Um, we don't have that, that right now. Brings, what? Go ahead. We don't have that any like ever, like right now. Like a couple that people are just. I mean, like I fainted when I saw Pete Davidson making out with Kate Beckinsale this week. But like, we don't have a celebrity couple we can all just obsess over, which is very sad. Well, men are trash now, is what we've learned. So n- none of them are appropriate. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's, <laughs> That's true. just the way it is. Things have changed, and we don't believe in men anymore. Um, away. Kate as a culture, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I. She she's 
something's wrong. Like some, she's crying for help, but no one's helping her. Um, (laughs) anyway, that brings us to our ballots for the big six awards. Um, uh, I will read them off and the winner and we'll just go through them. Um, so for director, it was Victor Fleming one for gone with the wind. Frank Capra was nominated for, um, Mr. Smith goes to Washington, John Ford for stagecoach, Sam Wood for, um, goodbye, Mr. Chips, William Wyler for Wuthering Heights. Um, I'm actually fine with Victor Fleming winning, even though he like it was directed by committee. But like the man had a nervous breakdown. What am I going to do? Take away Victor Fleming's thing? Come on. Yeah, I mean, it's the sort of thing as much as the movie is problematic with a capital P. Mm -hmm. It makes sense for him. Excuse me to get this award. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. The filmmaking, the imagery is still incredible. Like the cinematography is still breathtaking. Some of it, the those sunset shots, that the red of Atlanta burning in the background when when Rhett and uh, fucking Scarlet kiss for the first time, kill me. It's too much. Um, actor uh, Robert Donut won for Goodbye Mr. Chips, which is um, insane. He didn't show up to the award ceremony, which is also even wilder. Um, Clark Gable for Gone with the Wind was nominated, Lawrence Olivier for Wuthering Heights, Mickey Rooney for Babes in Arms, um, and Jimmy Stewart for Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Um, you know what? Um, I don't know. This is tough. I think I'd give it to Stewart, actually. He's very good in that movie. I'm going to go with Lawrence Olivier. He is dreamy and gothic realness in it, and I, I'm here for it, even <laughs> if I don't love the movie. Yeah, I can't. I mean, I can't argue with that. I will also say that I like Clark Gable is very, very good as Rhett Butler, who is a problematic nightmare person in Gone with the Wind. Um, he, there, he and Vivian Lee have such insane chemistry at some points where I was like, I need a fucking adult. I can't be alone with this. This is too much. This is too much sexuality. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm not old enough. Like, I can't be seeing this. Um, and he's, there is something appealing in his like sort of quick talking slick mustachioed you know very rich man thing like you know who, who knows how to fuck what, what am i gonna do say no to that i'm not a you know look at <laughs> look at the choices we have these days i'd um, give him an oscar for it happened one night so you know <laughs> in my universe he already actually in this universe he already had an oscar um so it's like you're good you can wait like yeah. give it to lawrence totally, totally. yeah lawrence would i mean it, i can't argue with any of that um, actress Vivian Lee wins for Gone with the Wind, Betty Davis for Dark Victory, Irene Dunn for Love Affair, Blowing My Mind, um, Greta Garbo for Nanochka, and Greer Garson for Goodbye Mr. Chips, which is bizarre because she, that's category fraud. She's a supporting actress. Like, she's the only woman in it, but she is in it for like half an hour. Maybe, yeah, it's maybe. very interesting to think that, like, if this movie was released today, she'd be put in supporting, like, 100%, 100% and probably win. Like, yes. oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. She's great. She's great. Um, what a great the, oh, category Oh, I didn't say is. who I would... I, I would actually leave Vivian Lee. I think it's the most incredible performance I've ever seen in anything, honestly. Like, <laughs> it's so good. She becomes Scarlet, and there's... The stuff she can say with just her face is so incredible. And, like, she's mean, and she's fun, and she's funny, and she's... Like, she, she has to play so many levels and bring this character through so much. And is also, like, the most beautiful person who's ever existed like technicolor was so good to her and she's like so young and perfect and like my it's like there are scenes that i was just like jesus how did how was any other woman allowed to live (laughs) um i do love vivian lee um i think she's amazing also in 
really the only other film she's known for anymore of A Streetcar Named Desire, yeah. um, which will probably, I think that was nominated. We have picture. to talk about it. Yeah, yeah we'll very, talk about that, yeah. Fairly soon, actually, yeah. But um, I got to go with Betty. Like, yeah. what, what a performance that is. And I just think, like, the movie's great on multiple fronts, but she's given less to bolster her up than Vivian's given and does more with it, I think. So I'm just like, ugh, like, use the resources you got. She does a great job. Like, yeah. ugh, Betty, I mean, I'm probably going to give her so many Oscars as we go through these <laughs> these years. Like, You're going to so give good. her every Oscar she's ever been nominated for, I think. Um, <laughs> which is fine. You're totally allowed. <laughs> <laughs> it's gay rights. Yeah, it's gay rights to give it. I mean, I, yeah, Viv- I, Vivian is so good, though. She's just so good. I it, That... That performance honestly blew me away because again I didn't like her uh, when I first saw it. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't. I just. I there. I just didn't get it. And watching it this time, I was like, this bitch is fucking dropping fucking mics all over this place. There were no microphones left. It was incredible. Um, also, I, I do want to note that Judy Garland is not nominated in that for uh, the Wizard of Oz, but she did win an honorary award for the. It's like the Academy Juvenile Award, and. Um, uh, Mickey Rooney gave it to her because they were in a lot of movies together, including Babes in, in Arms. Also, you know what? I do see the argument for Betty Davis, by the way, because she was in three other films that year. Juarez, The Old Maid, and The Li- the Private Lives of uh, Elizabeth and Essex. For, so for like, she may have done, like, Vivian Lee does the most work in one a single movie, but Betty Davis might have done the most work in 1939. <laughs> she just gives it her all everywhere she goes. She's yeah. like, oh, I love her. Like, did she sleep? My God. Like, four movies in a single year? Can you imagine? And she was the lead in, like, all of them. Sleeps for the week. Yeah. Yep. She does. Um, supporting actor. Thomas Mitchell for Stagecoach. Um, Thomas Mitchell won. He was also in... Um, he's the the father in Gone with the Wind that year. Um, the father of Scarlet. Um, and he is also in a movie called um, Only Angels Have Wings uh, with Cary Grant. Um, that also came out that year. So... He he definitely won for being in the most things. <laughs> uh, Brian Ahern in Juarez, Harry Carey for uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington in a role I would not have considered. He's like he's the head of the Senate or whatever, and he's barely in it. Yeah, I was kind of like, wait, who is he? Like I had to like yeah. really like look up a picture because I was like having trouble placing him. <laughs> yeah, it's a decent it's a decent performance, but it is weird. Um, Brian Dunleavy for Beaujest and Claude Rains for Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. I like Mitchell, but I would have chosen Wayne for Stagecoach. Would should have been nominated. Um, and I, I, but as it stands, I choose Claude Rains. He's so good in uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Agree completely. I would have given it to him too. He is. There's something about him that is just so restrained. He does a lot with that. Like um, he, I don't know. I just like every scene he was in. I thought like he brought so much to that character who is very flatly written. But, yeah, he's so evil. Yeah, but, like, in a way that feels real. Like, you know, like, for a movie that is very naive about politics, he does seem like a real politician. (laughs) It felt very familiar, that character today. You know what I mean? Like, really familiar. Subtweet. Yeah, subtweet everyone. (laughs) Uh, For supporting actress, we've got Hattie McDaniel for Gone with the Wind. Um, She played Mammy. Um, She, again, if you, if you guys do watch, end up watching that, that recording of the ceremony, her speech is really lovely. Like she was the first African-American, um, ever nominated for an Oscar and the first one to win. Um, so yeah, she's very emotional in that because, because of that, um, Olivia de Havilland for Gone with the Wind, she plays, um, 
the like sort of best friend of Scarlet, but Scarlet hates her because Scarlet is in love with Ashley Wilkes, Olivia de Havilland's character's Melanie's husband, um, who is, I said it earlier, but very briefly, Ashley Wilkes is the worst male character of all time. He's a simpering piece of shit and I hate him. I just want that on the record. Um, <laughs> uh, anyway, Olivia de Havilland for Gone with the Wind, Geraldine Fitzgerald for Wuthering Heights, which is bizarre. Um, she was also um, the best friend in Dark Victory that year. Um, <laughs> I didn't make that connection until now. Jesus, wow. Oh, Everyone was just doing everything this year. Yeah, well, I mean, it's 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 weird. Yeah, but like, I, I, I mean, we, we'll, we'll talk about it, I suppose. But like, I can't believe she was nominated for Wuthering Heights and not Dark Victory for, for supporting. Um, Edna Mae Oliver for Drums Along the Mohawk. And then Maria Uspenskaya for Love Affair. Um I'm not going to take it away from Hattie McDaniel, even though I think Olivia de Havilland is probably the better performance. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd give it to Hattie McDaniel, too. She's very good. That like Talk about doing a lot with a character who is, like, like yeah. nothing on the page. And, I mean, yeah. like, who knows what they were fucking thinking when they were writing that character. Um, She's bad in the book, too, honestly. It's very rough. I think I do think Geraldine Geraldine Fitzgerald is is pretty good in Weathering Heights. I'm gonna have to have yeah. to say I think she she does a lot. Like I only say it because it's a smaller role than the Dark Victory role. It is. She's good in Dark Victory too. Like I mean, you know, you really believe she's freaking out about her friend Glenn Lines. Yeah, <laughs> she deserved it for that, man. <laughs> but like you know, it's it's a weird category. I am shocked that Gene Arthur's not here from. Um, we're gonna get to it. We will. I, I agree. I think we're both. <laughs> we're both gonna get to it. <laughs> we are gonna get to it. Uh, <clears throat> anyway, um, my, I will say that my favorite thing about that category and the the reading inside Oscar is um, when she lost Olivia de Havilland, who is supposed to be not who never called her sister a bitch, got up after the category was read and sobbed in the kitchen because she could not believe she lost and David O. Selznick's wife had to come in there and be like shut the fuck up and go congratulate your fucking co-star you asshole and she like got it together and did so like what a messy queen I love her and now she's suing Ryan Murphy <laughs> we're gonna mention it every episode because realistically she was nominated for a lot of Oscars there's there's reason to it's amazing that she's suing Ryan Murphy now like I don't think we talk about it enough like, <laughs> and this is the thing. She definitely called Joan Fontaine a bitch. There's no way she didn't. <laughs> She's gonna come to us now. <laughs> We're gonna have to go testify in the Supreme Court. <laughs> oh my god, sue us, Olivia, please. Oh my god, she's so bad. <laughs> please don't. We're, she allegedly called her sister a bitch. <laughs> I mean, it just seems like she seems kind of messy. I don't know. It just seems likely is all I'm saying. Well, I mean, Catherine Zeta-Jones played her in, in Feud. So it's like, it's just all part of the image. She played her as a drag queen. Like, chill out, Olivia. Jesus Christ. Um, <laughs> oh, man. Uh, we, our next segment, we usually spotlight another category. Um, it's hard to do that this year because we sort of, I mean, everybody's kind of mentioned, nominated for six other things. Um, and also, I want to save that. We're probably going to save some of that for their, our final segment. Um, but I did want to spotlight the ways that the Academy was different back then, in that 39 is a big transition year. Uh, we've only been doing sound for about 10 years now, and, and we're like, wiz- The Wizard of Oz is the beginning, is like, is a testament to like, oh, we're going to change to color soon, basically. Um, but at this point in history, um, 
there are two cinematography categories, one for black and white, one for color. And there's also, wildly enough, two uh, best score categories, one for just regular old score, which is used from old music, and best original score, which is really the only thing we have now, is songs written for the thing. There used to be a category where you just take old songs, reappropriate them for your, your thing, <laughs> for your movie, and then that was – you could get nominated and win for that, which is insane to me. Like, can you imagine? It would be kind of like – I would almost love to see it now, but, like, it would never happen. I mean, like – also, look at the films nominated. It's like you have, like, 10 for one category. You got like. It's like, it just, they just nominated whoever the fuck they wanted. Basically, the Oscars were Wild Wild West back then. Yeah, thank God they eventually limited. But man, for a while there, it was like, it truly, like, literally, like, Best Cinematography Black and White has 10 nominees. That's, that's the same for picture. And then Best Cinematography Color has six. Like, it's too much. We have to stop this. Like, some of the categories are fucking wild. It's like 45 things were nominated for Best Original Score. Like, truly. Like, every film that came out in 1939 was nominated. They just loved everything back then. It's literally 12 movies. That's too much. <laughs> like, come on. Um, and then our final segment, um, for your consideration, where we're going to talk about Gene Arthur. Let's just yeah. fucking say it. <laughs> Surprise. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Uh, you go first because I have – I know we're going to talk about Washington, but I have a second reason she should have been nominated. Ooh. Um, no, like like we said before, this is a performance that the movie depends on and she yeah. kills it. I truly do not think I would have liked the movie the second time I watched it even without her being in it. She brings a much-needed edge to it. Like the movie is so annoyingly naive – and like innocent and she is this sort of connection to the modern world that you just you need she's wonderful i would love to hear your thoughts i think this is one of those performances she really could have gotten a lead or supporting like it's the sort of thing which is why i'm kind of like she's like how did she not get in i mean it's like she's so fucking good um yeah. I, I no, mean, I fully yeah. agree. She should have she could have been nominated for lead or supporting because like the role is big enough like that she you could justify actress because again, she is also like the only actress in it realistically who's like got a big role. Like but and she's got a way bigger one than Greg Garson and she is like the motivating factor for the movie. The movie doesn't work without her. She is the opposite of him and they're always they're basically always on screen together. So like she should have been nominated in, in a leading role. That, then again, stacked fucking year. But you could easily re- – you she should have been replaced with – like she could replace Greer Garson or, frankly, Irene Dunn. Um, or in Best Supporting, you could add a, you could replace her with just about anybody in this goddamn care- category. I don't give a shit. Yeah, like, no. It's like <laughs> – I don't understand. I'm sorry. It's a poor Maria Aspen uh, – like Aspen. Uspenskaya. Yeah. yeah Fuck I mean, you, Edna May Oliver. <laughs> like that – like – Maria Oskanjushaya, whatever her fucking name is, like, (laughs) that is a performance that is, I mean, like, I want to be kind, like, it's like... It's forgettable. I mean, forgettable, and also just, like, the sort of performance from the 30s that is truly dated, where it's just, like, yikes, and and not in, like, a problematic way, I just mean it's, like, it's kind of cringy, and, you know, it's so fucking fresh and fun, and, like... I'm like, come on, people. Like, what did you miss back then? 
that performance feels timeless. You could, it works in any era. You could take it out of that movie, transport it to any movie now for some smart mouth chick. And she is in the DNA of every one of those characters. 100%. 100%. This every single even, one. I want to double check. I think this is even before His Girl Friday. I think that was 40. His Girl Friday. I think, yeah, yes. I think it is. His Girl Friday was 40. This is before His Girl Friday, and, like, this invented His Girl Friday. Like, you said this yeah. before. It is, my God, it is in just the birth of, an, of a cliche character. The but, birth of a cliche, and, yes. and done perfectly. I mean, like, Rosalind does a great job. I'm never going to say a bad word against Rosalind Russell. She is the queen of my life. But no, yes, of bit, course. Jean yeah. Arthur comes for her. She she came for her. She came for her. <laughs> <laughs> I love them both. It, like... Oh, just I want more movies of just women being smart Alex to men yeah. and like and being like I'm the only reason you're successful basically like truly I'm not kidding when I say I watched this movie and was like oh my god I feel like I'm being read to filth because the, that Gene Arthur character has clearly influenced everything I like about any female character after that point Felicity Smoke from Arrow I'm looking straight at your ass we don't have um, enough of like his girl Fridays in movies anymore like well, this is a hard tangents but like no but but it's but here's the thing the boys hate those that like truly i've never seen any character get more shit than the felicity smoke from arrow thank you very much that's why i stopped writing about it <laughs> i just think of like you know um and i'm stealing this from a recent conversation on the blank check podcast um like gwyneth paltrow and iron man is doing serious his girl friday in the She's first movie and then God, in the sequels they totally lose that and i i think a part of it is that i just don't think she cares at all about those movies well they don't <laughs> and they don't care about her is the problem yeah no that's that's that is true but it's just like it's funny that is such a great archetype of a character that we don't get enough of anymore and it's to and a lot of again so much of it is thanks to gene arthur mm. um my, I, now I'm going to launch my defense of Gene Arthur, which I haven't actually launched yet. Uh, Gene Arthur, this is a fucking crazy year for her because did you know that she was in the final running to be Scarlett Scarlet O'Hara? I did not. Wow. Yeah. She was top four. Like it was like her, Vivian Lee, and like three other – like two other girls. And she almost got it, which is – what a hard year for her already. And then she doesn't get nominated, not only for Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, which gives us the Girl Friday trope, essentially, even before we had a name for Well, I mean, I guess the play had been out by then. But then she's in a second movie this year, which I have not had a ton of time to watch, like, other things that came out in the years that we're doing just because we have to, I have to watch so many movies. But I happened to watch a little movie called Only Angels Have the Wings, and it snatched my fucking wig off. I was blown away it's her and Cary Grant uh he is like a pilot and she is like a showgirl who stops in his little banana boat town in um South America somewhere and she turns on the same charm that she does in in Washington but she is like she's a she's literally like a dancer piano chick who just like is traveling around and is like I want to fuck Cary Grant so bad that I'm gonna I'm gonna stay in in this country and miss the boat, and their chemistry is fucking wild. I was screaming. It is <laughs> so. It's a messy movie. There's some real problematic gender stuff in it, and and Cary Grant's character is probably a total misogynist for a lot of it. It's also like the film that made Rita Hayworth a star. Like literally, Jean Arthur is her her romantic rival in that movie is Rita fucking Hayworth. One of the most beautiful women who's ever lived. And she 
you're like, no, I'm rooting for Gene Arthur. Thank you very much, Cary Grant, who is <laughs> so hot in it, by the way. Um, and she should have been nominated for that movie in in supporting. Absolutely. She could have she should have been nominated twice in supporting. She's so good this year. And it's insane to me that she was not nominated for anything, either role in any actress level, whatever you call it. I actually also can't believe that Only Angels Have Wings wasn't nominated. It's um, it's very good. I it's a Howard Hawks film. There's real like plane like filming like they literally film a plane like dive bombing through the air like as if its engines have or like the 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 pilot has passed out in the seat and I was screaming and this is 1939 that is hard to film to film like an actual plane in the air they they barely do outside outdoor photography at this point in this in history like it's wild that they got plane footage they got they put a plane next to another plane and they shot a camera from one plane that's wild um like, I can't believe Goodbye Mr. Chips got nominated this year instead of that. Or Wuthering Heights, which I will forever read to fucking filth. And, like, <laughs> Nanochka, toss the shit. Of Mice and Men, toss the shit. All of those things should not have been nominated instead of Only Only Angels, only Angels Have Wings and Gene Arthur. Um, I was also going to say The Women at one point, but no. It's all it's all Gene Arthur all the time. Gene Arthur was robbed. She was ne- She's never won an Oscar, and 1939 is to blame for that. That's it. I will say, um, one, I saw your review of Only Angels Have Wings on Letterboxd. You should all follow us on Letterboxd, people. But, um, like, I was so mad that I, that it was not on my radar until, like, whatever day you watch it. Because I was like, fuck, this sounds so good. And now I watched I it, like, two to, days, like, two days before we recorded. Yeah, there was no time. Totally. I need to watch it eventually. It look, it sounds so good. And then also, just since you brought it up and I totally forgot about it, but, like, I like the woman a lot. Also, that is a great movie. <laughs> came, out, very... came out the same year. None of the 120 women in that film is nominated for supporting actress. What the fuck? <laughs> like, what is what is wrong with you people? Uh, Joan Crawford and Ro- Rosalind Russell are right there, turning in incredible performances in that film, and they don't nominate either of them or Gene Arthur. Like, why don't you just tell women they suck? My God. That was just the press release at the time. Like, yeah, women are stupid. We're done with them. That's basically what they said, and I'm offended for all of them. Go watch the woman, people. It's great. I even kind of like the remake. Not gonna lie, <laughs> I've yeah, only seen sh- bits of it on TV, but I was like, this is charming. <laughs> it's a shame that they get rid of the essential conceit of that movie, which is that there are no men in it. But oh well, <laughs> what can you do? <laughs> You can't cure everything in Hollywood. <laughs> right. Like, it's like for people who don't understand the women, the point of it is that there's no men in the cast, but they talk about men the whole time. It barely passes the Bechdel test. But the remake, they put men in it, and it's like, well, that's that was the whole point. It was that there are no men in it. <laughs> like, what are you doing? It's so stupid. We can't fix everything in Hollywood, people. We're going to try, but, you know. <laughs> It's, it's hard. <laughs> so stupid. Um, and that wraps up uh, 1939. It was a big year. Um, this was a long episode. We were kind of hoping to go shorter. But uh, listen, 10 nominees, what can you expect? We're only – we're two human beings. And, and Gene Arthur was robbed and we had to go on about that for at least 45 minutes. And now you all know about the Wizard of Oz in concert and you can go look it up on YouTube and, and experience this wonderful memory of my childhood. I can't wait to watch it. I mean – Honestly, Deborah, I can't believe there's something from Deborah Winger I haven't seen, frankly. Um, speaking of Deborah Winger, we're going to probably, I'm going to be talking about her next week, even though she is not in an Oscar nominated film that year, because um, we're going to be talking about 1987. Um, 
which is uh, a big year for you because it has one of your favorite movies in it, and you're going to be hosting. Yes, and I forgot she is tangentially related to one of those movies. It's going to be very interesting to talk about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, no, yeah, we'll be talking 1987. You should all watch those movies. 80, 87, I think. Did you just say 97, or did I imagine that? I thought I said 87, but I'm terrible <laughs> at enunciating. So it is 1987, people. Mm-hmm. Um, you should all watch the movies. The, the Last Emperor is a big watch, so like you know, but the, the f- other four nominees are totally worth seeking out. I think so. Yeah, and and only like two hours at most. <laughs> yeah, they're all. I think they're all under two hours. It's great. Yeah. Um, so you know, watch nineteen eighty seven people and um, the sign off. Just follow me on Twitter, Matt not Matthew one, and you can find me on Letterbox at Matt T. Uh, yeah, and I'm on Twitter at uh, Marissa Carpico, and I'm on the site at, uh, you know, same name. <laughs> um, Letterboxd, same name. Uh, fucking Instagram, same name. You can find me everywhere. Uh, go to Rotten Tomatoes, even, wherever you want. Um, yeah, and that is it. Thanks for listening, everyone.